God's plan for the renewal of heaven and earth is much like his plan described in the Old Testament. He is a refining fire that gives way to new growth, like in Isaiah 6.13 and elsewhere. This is how God's people overcome while under attack. Good morning. Would you stand with me, those of you who are able, for the reading of God's Word? Today's sermon comes from Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. The Apostle John writes to us, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days... Some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as always, but I feel very much more apparent that I need your help. So Spirit of God who wrote this book book for us, Uh, I ask for you to make known your presence among us to those who believe, to make sense of this word, to those who do not believe that you would give them new life because of your word. Lord, please bless the preaching of your word in saving and transformative ways. Lord, we trust you and we call on you in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. I'm going to begin today by giving you the main point of the sermon. All right, so all seven of you who made it to church today... You're very lucky people. Here is the main point of the sermon right up front. The destiny of Jesus' people is bound to the destiny of Jesus. The destiny of Jesus' people is bound to the destiny of Jesus, meaning the person and the path, the career, the trajectory, the ministry for being sent, for being set aside for prophesying, testifying, witnessing, for suffering, for being persecuted, and for being redeemed and saved and glorified. The very path, the very career, the very ministry, the very trajectory of Jesus himself, Jesus' people 
are bound to that same trajectory. We say that our church's mission is to make disciples of Jesus, and a disciple is a follower, not simply a student who goes to a class and sits under a teacher's teaching and then goes away and the teacher goes home. In high school, you're a student and you have a teacher, but you're not necessarily a disciple of your teacher. But we Christians are disciples of our Lord. So he's not simply our rabbi, our teacher. His disciples in the New Testament refer to him not simply as rabbi, but master. We are your disciples. We not simply learn from what you say, but we learn from what you do and we follow you in it. And so the things you say, we will say. We'll learn to say what you say. And the things that you do, you teach us how to do those things after you. And so the destiny of Jesus' people is bound to the destiny of Jesus himself. All right, so you're really lucky. I'm going to give you the three main points of the sermon today, too, under that one. All right, the supporting, the supporting points. All right. Number one, God protects his people to prophecy. God protects his people for the purpose of their prophecy. And when I say prophecy, I don't simply or only mean uh, future events and foretelling. I do mean that, but not only that. Prophecy, in the, in the biblical sense, in the complete and fullness of the biblical sense, is to tell the truth. To tell the truth. Now, the prophets of old in the Old Testament, they were telling the truth that God directly gave to them, and they received, and they told the truth to God's people, the Israelites, the Jews. And so they told the truth about what God said, this is who I am, and this is who you're supposed to be, but this is who you are, and this is what will happen if you do not repent, and this is what will happen if you do repent and turn back to me. To prophecy means to tell the truth. God protects his people. He protects his church for the purpose of our truth-telling, for our prophecy. Number two, our prophecy, our truth-telling brings persecution. To tell the truth also brings tribulation. It simply does. And number three, reward comes by persevering through persecution. So I'm getting a little Baptisty today with some alliteration, some Ps, okay? Reward comes by persevering through persecution. I'll say more about that later. I ask three questions every week when I prepare the sermon, and now when I'm preaching the sermon, I ask those three questions. What are those three questions? From this passage, what do we need to know about God? What, what his character is like, what his expectations are, what his path for us is, right? What he loves, what he hates, what are his acts, what are his words? What, what information do we need to feed and fuel our minds? And then number two, how should we feel about that? Like not only are Christians' minds to be filled, but our hearts are to be filled. There are, there are some today, even here in America, who would go, well, your feelings don't matter. They say that either politically, philosophically, value-wise, or they even say it religiously and theologically, that your, your emotions don't matter. It's what, it's what you know. That's not true. That is not true. The, the commands of the Lord, the encouragement of the Lord, time and time again, as much as he fills our minds, is then that we are to rejoice, find joy, find peace, find comfort, find happiness, find rescue. Let not your hearts be troubled. I have overcome the world. Our emotional content is absolutely crucial. It's a right hand and a left. What should we feel? How should we feel? 
You understand that in, in modern society, even within the church often, there's this underlying implication, this underlying belief that no one is supposed to tell you that you're feeling the, right way, the, the wrong way, that your emotions are wrong. How dare you delegitimize my feelings? How dare you tell me that how I feel about this is wrong? How I feel is how I feel. The only problem with that would be what? The Bible. The Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, his Son, and his Holy Spirit who dwells in his people is here to sanctify, to change, to cor correct, to course correct, and draw our emotions, the seat of our emotions, our heart, in line with the way God feels. And so we are to come to God's word and submit not only our thoughts and our beliefs, but also our, our heart, our emotions. So how should we feel? And then finally, well, what should we do about this? How do we respond to this passage? The heavy lifting today uh, is in filling the mind, all right? I'm just going to give you that up front. The, the heavy lifting for me uh, and you today is, is filling our minds. So talking about the, the path, the destiny of Jesus, I want to let, let you know in, in introductory work for this passage, the Lord, the Lord has the following in store for his church. When I say church here, I mean big C church, not just Restoration City Church, but all true churches filled with true Christians in all the world. The Lord has the following in store for his church, his beloved people. He has protection. He has prophecy in store for us, persecution in store for us, perseverance in store for us, the prize that he has in store for God's people, and the punishment he has in store for his enemies. Revelation chapter 11 is notoriously is notoriously known and understood by theologians and pastors as either the hardest or one of the hardest passages in the entire Bible to understand and interpret. Uh, now, for better or for worse, I, I tend to like just optimistically approach the Bible, and you know, it's going to be a hard passage, hard text. Well, cool. I'm up for the challenge. Let's go. I'm, I'm at four. I'm ready to just barrel in. Let's go. I, I, I got my knees cut out from under me in the past week or two going, Whoa, 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 I, I am way too big for my britches. Uh, I, 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 there is way more of the iceberg under the water, uh, and I can only see a bit of the, the tip sticking out here. So Pastor Tim down in Albany at Greenbrier Church, who our church is our team preaching through this, he and I have elected to split this chapter into two sermons. So we're not getting the whole passage today. Today I've got the opportunity to model for you. I think it's a good opportunity for me to model for you how I read and I learn from the Bible. I have an opportunity today to put fully on display the real humility it takes to open this book, to think about it, to feel about it, to speak about it, and try to do it. So friends, there, there is a lot in this chapter that I just don't know about. I just don't know. I want you to join me in a in a safe environment of humility, all right? A safe environment of humility to go, I'm not really sure about some of this stuff. I know it's true, and I know it has a meaning, but in some ways I don't know exactly how it is true, and I don't know exactly what some of these things specifically literally are. And I'm going to engage in hopefully enough humility, and I feel safe being there to go, hmm, hmm. I'm not sure. 
The Word of God, I want to assure you, is mainly, it's predominantly clear. There's an argument going around not only in atheistic, pagan, worldly culture in America, but it's, it's, even in, it's even intruding upon the church today that the Bible isn't understandable, that God's word is not clear enough. It's so open to interpretation that no one should land anywhere on anything. And I'm going to tell you, no, that's a lie. And I don't want you to believe it out of ignorance and I don't want you to believe it willfully. Do not lie. Do not steal. Fear the Lord. Trust in him for rescue and redemption from his judgment over your sin. Pray to God and God alone. Honor your father and mother. On and on, etc., etc. There, There is plenty. The predominant portion of the word of God is abundantly clear. And often, at least in postmodern Western society here in America... Much like your kids will do when you say, clean your room, and all of a sudden, uh, they, 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 their legs become disabled, and now they can't walk or do anything, even though just five minutes ago, they were shooting a Nerf gun on a pogo stick, okay? This is what adults, this is what not only non-Christians, but, but Christians will often do is to go, well, it's just really hard to understand. No, it's very easy and simple to understand. It's very hard. It's a very hard word for your hard heart. It's a very hard thing for you to do. But it is very clear. But there are some things that just aren't very clear. And a lot of it is in Revelation, okay? Revelation is written in what we call an apocalyptic genre, an apocalyptic style, meaning for all that Revelation reveals, that's the word Revelation means is the revealing. For all that Revelation reveals, it keeps some things shrouded in metaphorical mystery. And I'm I'm happy that the Lord has given us over the last few months two helpful principles in approaching what is confusing and mysterious about Revelation. I've said them more than several times in the last two months. I'm going to say them here very specifically, very clearly again. Two things. First, Jesus apparently has not burdened the apostle John to show us and explain specifically what some of these things are or mean or when exactly they will happen or how they will happen. It does not, it's apparent that John is not, he's not encumbered by the responsibility to speak plainly and explain his metaphors or symbols. Purposefully, the Lord has kept this as a mystery. Go read your Gospels, the, the Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are more than multiple times where Jesus himself conceals in mystery the truth of what he's telling people, and they go, what? He goes, all right. See y'all, loser. See y'all later, right? And the disciples were like, what was that? I was like, oh, yeah, I'll tell you guys around the fire pit tonight. I'll, I'll lead a Bible study. I'll explain it to you. Well, why didn't you explain it? Oh, if I explained it, they'd understand it. Uh, why wouldn't you? That, that's another sermon. But there are times and places and purposes of our Lord in which he, he deems it wisest and best to conceal th- some things in mystery. And number two, we therefore... We aren't expected, we are not burdened to know what some of these things are, but we do need to know what God is doing with them, and we need to know that we need him to do those things. I've used the example of the alternator in my Jeep, right? I'm not too much of a car guy, 
All right, this, this coming week I plan to change the oil in my Jeep the first time in my whole adult life, my whole life at all, that I intend to take upon me the manly endeavor of changing the oil in my own car rather than taking to more manly men at the, at the place who do it all the time, right, for money. I plan to do that this week, but I don't know what, I, can, I couldn't point at my alternator in my car. Hopefully that doesn't shame my father-in-law who's a brilliant engineer and, and, and mechanical mind, right? But I do know I have an alternator, and I do know what it does, and I do know that I need one. That's the burden in much of this mystery that we are under, is to only have that. The Lord does not want us to carry burdens that are not ours to carry. He wants us to carry the burdens that we are assigned to carry. And so, I want us to get into the text today, and as I do, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present some interpretive options, all right? I'm going I'm to give you, like like a little bit of a, a buffet, a food bar of things to choose from. I'm going to share with you what I believe, what I believe, let me put that up, what I believe is your pastor, what I believe are the most convincing ones or the more convincing ones, and then I'm going to lay them at your feet for you and the Holy, Holy Spirit to decide where you will land, right? I don't, I don't do that when the Bible, we get to a passage that says, honor your father and mother. I don't, I don't give you a several options about what that means. I tell you exactly what that means, and then I, I try to help you sort out what specifically you should do about that. I don't really lay that at your feet. As the pastor with the pulpit, there's a difference between preaching and teaching, and the big, one of the big differences between preaching and simply teaching is preaching is the teaching of God's word with authority. Authority that isn't mine, as Matt Ford's, but it's the authority that God hands over to his pastors and elders for the gathered church. Today... I will say some things with that authority, but much of what I will teach to you today, I'm going to, I'm going to leave it at your feet. And I'm going to happily tell you that even with all the interpretive mystery, there are things to know and feel and respond to regardless of your particular individual interpretation. So, after a 15-minute introduction, let's look at the scriptures, shall we? All right, verse 1. John was given a measuring rod like a staff. And he was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. We got two things specifically. There, there's a temple, but the temple is inside of a city. I want us to first, before we do anything else, I want us to see Jesus in this passage. The whole Bible, all of the Bible is about Jesus. It's from the spirit of Jesus to Jesus' people, to those who are or will become his people. It's from Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's for Jesus. The destiny of Jesus is our destiny as the church. And we see something marvelous and fantastic here in Revelation chapter 11. The narrative, I, I read the passage at the beginning of the sermon, the, the uh, first 1 through 10. The narrative of this temple and these two witnesses mirrors the narrative of Jesus Christ himself. Did anyone see that beforehand? Don't lie, but tell the truth if you did. It's cool. What you see here is actually the career, the ministry, the path, the trajectory of Jesus Christ himself in his earthly ministry. These two witnesses like Jesus, they are set aside for the purposes of the gospel, the testimony of, of God. They're sent out to accomplish the mission of the gospel. Jesus is sent. He is set aside by the Lord in heaven for the gospel, and then he's sent out into the world for the, for the mission of the gospel. He, 
He testifies to the truth of the gospel, which is what these witnesses are doing by witnessing, by testifying. And then dying in humiliation for and in the name of the gospel, which Jesus does, and so do the witnesses. And then Jesus was raised again, though he died in shame for the name and the glory of the gospel. He is raised again to glory, verifying the truth of the gospel. And we see that exact same thing played out in this chapter with these witnesses. And that's why I can confidently tell you the destiny of the church, the destiny of God's people is bound, it's wrapped up in, it's, it's more than duct taped to the destiny and path of Jesus himself. Now let's, let's see who and what is being taught about directly in this passage. Now we, now we do some heavy brain work, some, some heavy lifting. The I is the Apostle John. I was given a, a rod, and he was told to rise and measure. Now, he's not just measuring the height, the width, the depth, and square footage of this temple, this inner court. It's what he's being told is he's, he's to set apart this part, this area, this temple, from the rest of the city that this temple is in, Jerusalem. And he's not only measuring square footage and height and width and depth, but he's also numbering the quantity and quality of the people in the temple. Look at, look at what it says. It says, I was told to measure the temple as well as the altar and those who were worshiping there. I was told to measure in some way, to count, to quantify and to qualify who's there, who's, who's been permitted and who's inside. And the, the command from the Lord is... Outside of this temple, leave it alone. Only those who have been permitted in, only those who have been welcomed in, those are the people I'm counting. Now, this is not simply an only measuring. It's not simply an only counting like cubits or inches and feet. Why is, why is John being told to measure the temple and the people? It's because God is setting apart certain boundaries for protection. He's setting up certain boundaries, identifying the boundaries for protection. Just like when you do, when you purchase a property. When you, when you purchase a home, a surveyor is hired to come out with their instruments and their compasses and their laser beams, right? To measure what? The boundaries of your property so that you and the community and your neighbors all know what is yours, what you are responsible for, and what you are not responsible for. And then many of us have then chosen, I'm going to now build what? A fence at the edge of my property. And why? I've, I've set the markings, I've measured what is mine, and now I build a hedge of protection, a fence, so that those inside, my children, my spouse, my friends, my church friends, my, my welcomed and approved visitors, I'm responsible for them, and I will protect them, and they are under my service and protection. But what happens over there, what happens out there, whether or not I care about it, that is, that's not mine. That is not mine. What you do with it then is you build your fence. This over here is mine. That over there is not mine. No one can do over here anything except what I decide. But whatever someone else wishes to do over there, I, I will let them. 
The Lord is not simply setting up boundaries, but he's setting up boundaries for the protection, not simply of his temple, but of his people. Over and over and over again, specifically in the New Testament letters, God's people, the church, are described as God's holy temple. For in 1 Peter chapter 2, we are told that God is building his people, us Christians, into his holy temple. We are building blocks in his temple. So this is not merely or simply and only a physical place. This is a metaphorical representation of God is telling John, I want you to do this work. I want you to set aside and I want you to mark out who my people are. And those are my people, and I'm going to hand over the rest of the earth. I'm going to hand over the rest of the city of Jerusalem. I'm going to hand over all of the rest of humanity to do as they see fit. But these are my people, and they will do as I see fit, and they will love me, trust me, obey me, and worship me. Which brings us to that first subpoint: God protects his people to prophecy. That is why God is doing this. This is why the Lord has given John this first instruction Though we can and we will be persecuted or even killed for our living testimony and witness to Jesus, we are protected. I told you a month or two ago, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? Worst thing, on human terms, on worldly terms, it is a terrible thing. It is just about the worst thing, that you could die or that someone you love could die. But God, God himself in his word says, that's not the worst thing that could happen. Jesus himself says, I believe it's in the Gospel of Matthew, he goes, don't fear those who can kill your body. You need to fear me, who can kill the body and soul and condemn you to hell for eternity. That's what you really need to fear. It's not the first death that every human being goes through that is the worst thing. The worst thing is the second death at the hands of God himself where you do not walk in eternal life in the new kingdom, but you walk in eternal death and hell and Hades. We are protected from spiritual death so that we can tell the truth, so that we can prophecy. You know what's dangerous about a person that you can't, you can't even warn away, you can't scare them off with death or fines or arresting? You know why they're so dangerous? Because they could do anything. You can't stop them. You have nothing to hold over the head, right? This is some of you in the last two weeks of your job. Once you give your two weeks notice, you're like, all right, well, I'm going to walk into work not in the assigned uniform. What am I going to do? Fire me? I'm out of here anyhow, right? Because you don't have anything to hold over me. I'm dangerous. That's the Apostle Paul. Paul, stop preaching the gospel or else we'll throw you, we'll, like, we'll, we'll throw you to the lions. We'll, we'll throw you on the cross. We'll kill you. Go, oh, live, live with Christ. Die is gain. So go and kill me. I'll be with Jesus. Oh, yeah. Oh, so you're going to death wish. Oh, you want to? Fine. We'll throw you in jail. That's cool. I'll convert your, your, your jailers and, and write Bible verses. You couldn't touch the guy. No matter how mad you touched him, no matter if you beat him or cut his head off, he was dangerous because he knew that though the first death is in store, he has been protected from the second greater worst death. And so now he goes, ain't nobody got anything to hold over my head. I'm untouchable until the Lord brings me home. And if he uses a Roman axe to take my head off, okay. It's not okay, but it'll be okay. God's people, the church, are protected from spiritual death so that we can prophecy for that purpose, <laughs> so that we can live 
and speak the truth of God and his gospel so that we can suffer anything, even death, and know that our salvation and eternal life is protected and held in safety by God himself. So, what's this temple? Let's talk about the temple. Here's where I get into a little more brain work. What's the temple? Okay, I got two options to give you. There might be more, but these are the two big ones. What's this temple then? It, I, I told you that you know, my, my interpretation is, I gave you the previews, it's God's people. The, the first option is what's called a dispensational view and a dispensational interpretation. I unpacked dispensationalism early on in our Revelation sermon series, so you can go back to archives and go look for that. But that, in that view, this is the literal temple in Jerusalem, the literal temple. Now, I want you to know, currently there is no Jewish temple in Jerusalem. The first temple was destroyed during the Old Testament times by Babylonians and Assyrians. And then the second temple, which Jesus walked into in his, or his earthly time, that, that was built by Herod the Great. It was the second temple. And then in A.D. 70, the year A.D. 70, the Romans came in. They were tired of the Jews' shenanigans and rebellion against Roman government. They were tired of the Jewish God. And so they came in and reduced the temple to rubble. And since 70 A.D., nearly 2,000 years, the Jews have had no temple to offer sacrifices to God. There are no Jewish priests because there is no Jewish temple. And so in this view, if this really is the literal temple, then it's going to have to be the rebuilt and reinstituted temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which currently is occupied by two of the holiest Muslim mosques in all of the world. For the foreseeable future, we don't see that happening. But in this view, they believe it will. And this is in line with the dispensationalist view that of the two witnesses, which I'm going to get to in a second. And, and the belief is that what happens to these two witnesses, the world looks on and sees what, what happens to the two witnesses. They, they hear the testimony. They see them killed, right? The belief is that in, this is a future event, and the world will have the ability to witness what's going on via television or the Internet or social media. Now, before the advent of radio and television, I don't know how a dispensationalist would have interpreted this, how the world could view, the whole world could view, all the nations and all the tribes and the languages could have viewed and have known about what was happening. And this is one of the reasons why I don't find this one convincing. Number two, the other. What is this temple? Well, it's a metaphor. It's a symbol the Bible repeatedly uses for Jesus and his church. We are told that we will be made pillars in the temple of God, that one of the churches, one of the seven churches in Asia Minor was told this early in the book of Revelation. Verse one here tells us that John doesn't simply measure a physical space, but more accurately measures the quantity and quality of those who worship there. So, by the way, when we get there in Revelation chapter 21, a few weeks ago when I memorized scripture, the Revelation portion, I, I recited to you, I, I spoke to you that when John sees the new heavens and the new earth, he sees the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of the, the clouds from heaven, from God, it's adorned like a brand new bride for her brand new husband. And in the city, John saw no temple, for the temple was now the Lord God himself and his lamb and his people. Those who belong and are welcomed into the city and the temple, the holy city and its center. 
I land on the second one. I urge you to, to join me, but I lay it at your feet. What is the great city? He says, this great city, metaphorically, symbolically known as Sodom and Egypt. That's in verse chapter, sorry, verse 2. Our first important note is that the great city is only metaphorically known. That's, that's how John says it. This great city, metaphorically known as what? Sodom and Egypt. If you are familiar with your Bible, then you know who Sodom and Egypt are. They are not described as, characterized as, considered by God in the Old Testament as monuments of righteousness, holiness, obedience, and faith in the Lord God. Jesus was crucified just outside the earthly city of Jerusalem. We, we can know that this city, which is metaphorically known as Sodom and Egypt, we can know this is Jerusalem because John's word is this is, this is the city in which our Lord was crucified and killed. Is Jerusalem, therefore, ever symbolically referred to in the Bible as either Sodom or Egypt? I thought Jerusalem was the, the capital city of the Jews. I thought Jerusalem was God's holy city. You just said it a few times, Matt. It's holy city. I did. And John says holy city, and then he says this great city, that great city. Let me unpack that. The city of Jerusalem stands in as the capital. So when, 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 other, when other nations, when other cultures, when the news media talks about uh, today, today in Washington, uh, blah, 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 Washington, D.C. stands in for America. When Washington issues a proclamation, when something, some judgment or some leak law is written coming out of Washington, it, it represents all of America, right? This is the way that Jerusalem stands in. In God's word. In Isaiah chapter 1, 9 through 31. In Isaiah chapter 3, 8 through 9. I'm going to go so fast. You're not going to be able to write, even write it down. Jeremiah 23, 14. You're going to have to go back and listen to the sermon. I'm 33 minutes in. So now you know where to scrub through, all right? Jeremiah 23, 14. Ezekiel chapter 16. Amos 4, 11. Lamentations 4, 6. Over and over and over again, God himself, through his prophets, says, Jerusalem, you're Sodom. Sodom was an ancient wicked city who for its wickedness, for its sinfulness, for its rejection of God, and for its mistreatment of God's people was condemned to destruction. Sodom was one of two cities, twin cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Egypt stands with them as yet one more nation that stood opposed to God, held his people captive, and opposed him via Pharaoh. Pharaoh raising his fists and saying, no, I will not let your people go. Who is this God you're telling me about that I should obey him? Each and every time the nation of God's originally chosen people, the Israelites, the Jews, each and every time in the Old Testament that they turn from him, they distrust and obey, disobey him, they indulge in the worship of other gods, the Lord judges them via their capital, Jerusalem. He calls them Sodom. Over and over again in the Old Testament, when God's chosen people, the Jews, turn from him and prostitute themselves to the pagan gods and pagan ways of other nations, the Lord calls Jerusalem by those other nations and their gods' names. The people, the nation, the holy city of God, God himself is not afraid to tell the truth. He tells the truth. Jerusalem, the city of God, referring to God's people, is 
sometimes referred to as the holy city. In Revelation chapter 21, the holy city, right? It's a holy city. So what gives? Why would he call the holy city Sodom or Egypt? Well, here's the, here's the reason. When the Lord, via John, says, these two witnesses go out into this great city, measure the temple, but leave the rest of the great city alone, the holy city, it becomes a great city. And that's not, that's not a complimentary word. In the Greek here, in the context, the Lord is not calling Jerusalem great because he thinks they're fantastic. Great is how God says they and the world view themselves. There's a bit of irony, a bit of almost sarcasm. Oh, the, the great city, this great city of yours. These folks who are too big for their britches and they think they can reject me, forget me, neglect me, treat me as an add-on. The city becomes holy once the full and final work of God's both judgment and salvation is accomplished, and then the holy city is purified and comes down out of the clouds in Revelation chapter 21. Jerusalem stands in for God's chosen people, the Jews who are repeatedly reproached for their whoring prostitutional ways, and yet, before we go, that's really harsh, over and over again in the Old Testament, And leading into the new, the Lord continues to promise that he will preserve a remnant of his people after and through the judgment. If you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, of of Abraham and Lot, Abraham goes, goes and gets his nephew who lives in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, goes, we got to go, the Lord's going to smite this place. The only reason he's allowed to do that is because Abraham goes, Lord, would you save a remnant? Can, can you just save a few people? Can you let me rescue a few people? And God goes, I'll let you get a few. But God rescues a remnant rather than destroy and wipe out the whole thing. And that's what he has promised to do with his own people. So this great city, is it here referring to the literal city that we know in modern day times as Jerusalem? Yes, maybe, kind of. I think so. Does it refer to the metaphorical city of Jerusalem? Standing in for the Jewish people. Maybe, yeah, sort of. I think so. I do think we ought to know that God does mean something specific, even if we can't suss out exactly what it is. To, to understand that there is a thing and we, we are, it's open to interpretation should not lead us to believe that it, ha, it, can, it can have multiple diverse interpretations. When God says something, he means something. Maybe he means a few things, but those are the things that he means. And I tell you that either way, the lesson that God is teaching and the response expected of us is going to be the same. Anyone's brain tired? My my brain is tired. Let's keep going. Where I'm landing and where I encourage you to land with me, if you will, is the great city, is the capital city of the nation of the Jews, and it's metaphorically the rest of the unbelieving world, because the Lord says they're all going to trample all over it. The temple inside of it represents the church, the universal church. When we say the universal church, the capital C, here's how we ought to define it. All believers in all times and in all places. I don't merely mean the New Testament church instituted about 2,000 years ago. I mean the Lord has, is, will, and always will protect everyone who belongs to him because of the Messiah, his son, whose name is Jesus Christ. That's the church. All believers in all times and in all places those who are in this temple, they span pre-Messianic believers. Those who lived 
and their faith in God was counted as righteousness before Jesus ever came in his life and ministry. That spans Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, Ruth, Boaz, David, Esther, and all the prophets, and many more. And it also includes post-Messianic believers, like the 12 apostles and the early Christians of the church and the martyrs and church fathers, and for the last 2,000 years, all true believers who are saved and redeemed by the person, work, death, burial, resurrection, blood, and grace of Jesus Christ. The temple represents God's people who belong to him because of Jesus. Now, if you're looking at your text, you're going, I don't know where he's to go in this passage. Well, pray for me. Pray for yourself. Verse 3. I will grant, the Lord says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. I'll touch that next week. I'm not going to touch that number today. The 42 months you saw in the first few verses, I'm not going to touch that today. All right? You've got to come back next week. The two witnesses will be clothed. They will be clothed in sackcloth. These two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have, the, they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. All right, more brain work. Let me teach you. Let me offer you some options. Who are the two witnesses? Who are the two witnesses? I'm going to go ahead and give you, hopefully I'll be a good example and a good role model to you today. For years, I have interpreted that these two witnesses are specifically two literal men, right? And I didn't even get the normal interpretation of this right. I've always gone, oh, it was, El- it was Elijah and Enoch. You know why? Because those are the only two human beings in all of the Bible we don't see die. Enoch just goes to be with the Lord. It didn't say he dies. All the other early, early human beings in, in Adam's line, so it all says they die and they go to be with their fathers. Enoch's the only one who goes, and he, he kind of, well, he doesn't write anymore. He didn't write letters. We haven't seen him. He went to be with the Lord. The implication is that Enoch never died. And then Elijah the prophet, well, he got a flaming Uber to heaven. And so my thinking was, well, these are the only two guys who never tasted the first death, and the first death is for all human beings. If it's not too good for Jesus, it's not too good for any human being. It's probably those guys. That's wrong. I got it wrong. How about, the, how about the actual normalized interpretation? Again, this, was, this is what would be viewed as a dispensational interpretation of who the two witnesses are. This is Elijah and Moses. And, and here why. One of them is one of only two men recorded in the Bible to have never died the first death. And at some point, he'll be sent back to this realm to deliver his prophetic witness and judgment, and he'll join, he'll join all the other humans in the appointed first death. And here's why it's perceived that this would be a return of these two prophets, Elijah and Moses. Both of the miraculous wonders that we see in verse 5 and 6, fire coming down, killing their enemies, closing up the sky, no rain, stuff like that, blood, right, water turning to blood. Those are things that we see those two dudes in the Old Testament actually do as part of their ministry. So... If this leads us to believe that chapter 11 is a dispensationalist vision of some future moment that has yet to come to pass, I don't stand there. I leave it at your feet. Do as you see fit between you and the Lord. Number two, this could be that the two witnesses are a symbolic representation of the New Testament church. 
of the New Testament church. The New Testament church is represented by two olive trees and lampstands. In, in the book of Zechariah, there's the, these lampstands, these, these olive trees, are, they are symbols of priests and kings. In Zechariah's prophecy, the king is a guy named Zerubbabel, and the priest is a guy named Joshua. And what does the Lord say in his New Testament scriptures telling us who we are? It's 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are kings and priests. We are the olive trees and lampstands who stand before the Lord of the earth, giving our testimony, living as witnesses. If so, this leads us to believe that the chapter 11 is possibly and probably a past, present, and undetermined future of the church age. Of the church age. I'll give you a third option. It's that the two witnesses are simply the universal church. And I just told you what the universal church is. These two witnesses are the pre-Messianic and the post-Messianic believers in God who stand as a witness to God himself before and after Jesus. And therefore, the miracles that we see done here in verse 5 and 6, those have occurred. We've seen those happen. And it leads us to believe that chapter 11 is, again, a view of the past, present, and undetermined future. But it goes not simply back to the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, but it goes all the way back to the garden where the Lord God gave Adam and Eve the proto-evangelion, the first gospel that said, the seed of a woman is going to crush the serpent. And he's going to set everything right. And it goes all the way to this present time of the church. Listen, I'm convinced that either, either or both of two and three work just fine. Either or both work just fine. In my view, I lay that before your feet, humbly going, I am not exactly certain. Option three, pre and post Jesus believers permits us to see those works. And these two witnesses are dressed in sackcloth. Address in sackcloth. Well, that doesn't sound like the church. That doesn't sound like what God means for the, for the church, for New Testament believers. Sackcloth? No, the Lord Jesus robes us in, in white. We're given the robe of Jesus. Well, I'll tell you this. So far in Revelation, when we see God's chosen elect worshiping in his throne room around his altar, when his redeemed church is represented, what are they dressed in? Robes of white, which symbolizes victory and purity. Here they wear sackcloth. This is clothing of poverty and humility, clothing of repentance and mourning. Humility and lowliness. Not loneliness, lowliness. It's, it appears that if we agree with this vision, and this is God's people, then he's appointed for us to bear witness and be his testimony givers, his prophesiers, his truth tellers, and our uniform is not wealthy, rich, purple robes. It's not opulence and worldly beauty and worldly riches and worldly approval. We are to be clothed in humility and lowliness, servanthood, repentance. I told you that the destiny of God's people, of Jesus' people, is bound to the destiny of Jesus. And so just as our Lord didn't come in might and power and beauty and splendor, at least not not the way the world counts it. So he sends us as his witnesses in lowliness and humility. No awesome, cool, worldly armor of wealth and strength. 
our courage, our power, our firmness to bear witness to and proclaim the gospel is shrouded in the mysterious humility of a king born as a baby in a food trough riding into the city on a donkey and then crucified in shame. And our destiny follows his path and destiny. Our strength is in the Lord and not in worldly shows of strength. Verse 7. When these witnesses, when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. All right, explain that. For three and a half days, for three and a half days, just a little longer than our Lord Jesus was in the grave, a little, a little longer than our Lord Jesus was physically dead. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Further shame, further humiliation, further degradation, further disrespect. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. All right, more brain work. Who's the beast? Who's the beast? All right, I want you to think Saturday Night Live in the 90s. I want you to think Dana Carvey. Think church lady. Put your finger like this up to your lips and go, mm, could it be Satan? The beast is Satan. We've seen him in chapter, in chapter 9 of Revelation. This is the one who falls from heaven and goes directly to the bottomless pit, freeing his, impre- his imprisoned demonic brethren. This is the beast. He goes down, falls, It goes directly to the bottomless pit. Up comes demonic forces that have been unleashed by the beast because the Lord gave him the key and said, go do as you wish. Go go have your day. And then he stays there while the demons go out. Now, at this point, when the work of the two witnesses are done, when the work of God's people are done in the past, present, and the future, this Satan, this beast, will rise from the bottomless pit to do his first notorious wicked deed. Whether it's personally Satan or represented by the full number of his servants and minions, this beast is Satan, which leads me to that second underpoint from the beginning of the sermon. Our prophecy brings persecution. The Lord, the Lord has protected his witnesses so that even though we die, we still are saved. And you have nothing, we have nothing to hold over their heads. That's why these witnesses can know exactly what's coming to them. The beast will kill them, but they do it anyhow. I'm not saying they're happy about it. Like, oh, no, go ahead and kill me. I would love, please. No, no, you missed a spot. Stab me here. No, I'm not saying that. But I'm telling you, they're untouchable because they know that they are protected and preserved by the Lord Jesus so that they can prophesy and bear witness. And their prophecy brings them persecution. If they do not prophesy, if they don't tell the truth about God, about Jesus, about sin, about salvation, about the life, death, burial, resurrection, the mercy and grace of Jesus, and the the condemning warfare that the Lord Jesus at some point in the future will bring to all those who oppose him, if they didn't say any of that, they wouldn't be killed. But because they say it, that's why they are killed. It's the beast, Satan, who is historically known as the persecutor of God's people. He is called the liar and the murderer. That's Satan's nickname. He is the deceiver. He is the murderer. 
Here he kills the witnesses, he murders them. And if that sounds surprising and scary to us, if you're going, oh, is that the future of me as a Christian? Is it the future of the church? Is, is the church on earth going to be decimated? Will, will we not have any church buildings anymore? And we will, like, oh, I don't know. Maybe. It, for some, again, I'll use that term, that category, dispensational. Those who are dispensationalists, they believe in something called a rapture in which all Christians just disappear. We don't die. We escape the first death. We just die. Leave our clothes behind. If you're a Christian pilot, the Lord sees fit to uh, let you just disappear and all the passengers on your Delta flight just die because you went raptured, right? What if the Lord chose in his sovereign wisdom as the final act of testimony to an unbelieving world that he would choose that all of his true Christians might share in the shame of murder and execution at the hands of the sinful world as part of the indictment of the sinful world because that's exactly what the Lord Jesus did. What if we followed? What, the, what if the Lord decided that it was best for us, all Christians on the earth, to follow the example of our Lord? It's totally possible. I don't know if that's what's going to happen. But it looks like the two witnesses are killed. I want you to recall all that Jesus tells us about how Satan and the unbelieving world will treat God's believers. You can go back and read the Gospel of John. Read the Last Supper, John chapter 14, 15, and 16. And Jesus is very clear, and he's unashamed about it. And he's not bashful. And he is extremely clear. If the world hates me, they're going to hate you. Do you think you're better than your master? No. And so if, they, if you love me, they're going to hate me, and therefore they're going to hate those who love me. Nevertheless, I'm going to give you my spirit so you can go and testify and be my witnesses. But don't, don't be deceived. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Do not lose heart. Why? For I have overcome the world. Romans chapter 8 says, it is written. The apostle Paul says, it is written. We are being killed all day long for your name. For your name, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as lambs to the slaughter. And what you see here in this passage is when God's people in the world are marginalized, punished, put in our place, knocked down a notch, shut up, canceled, or even killed, what does the world do? They make a holiday. They have a holiday. They rejoice. They gloat. They even... It's now an occasion to give presents. Right? The, the future Walmart will have a, a section called Dead Church Day, and people will buy whatever accoutrement. I don't know. I'm just. But it's that sort of idea, that sort of feeling. The world rejoices, they party. When the world marginalizes, punishes, puts, in our, puts us in our place, knocks us down a notch, shuts us up, cancels us, kills us. The world, the, the unbelieving world, feels righteous in power. You see, in the ancient Roman world in which John lived, in which Jesus lived, the world in which Revelation was being written, the view was, you Christians are way too exclusive. You guys are exclusive. You are a danger to our society. You're tearing apart the fabric of our society. Most of all, because you will not honor and worship all of the deities. You worship one. 
and that's bad for society. You're ruining the morals and ethics of our children. You're tearing apart our society. You're bad. You're wicked and you're evil, you Christians, because of your exclusivity on identifying, honoring, and worshiping one God alone. In our present time, the view is you Christians are far too exclusive. You're tearing apart the fabric of our society because you won't honor all of our identities and idols. You're bad. You're bad. Because you will submit to, obey, and tell the truth only of the Lord and walk only in his ways. You're a bad person. And you need to be punished. You need to be canceled. You need to be excluded, marginalized. You need to keep that in the pew of your church, but don't take it out in the, uh, on the public. You can't be a judge. You can't be a leader. You need to set your Christian values. You need to set your Christian Jesus aside and leave him at the door if you want to play with us. And if you don't, you'll be punished. And we see the fullness of that. The full, ultimate thing here in Revelation chapter 11. When the world is done playing games with Christians, with the church, they're done playing games. How are the witnesses, the church? It says, it says that they did this because they were happy they were dead because these two witnesses had been a what? A torment to those who dwelled on the earth. How could the... Do you think we're a torment? Like some of you are like, your sermons are kind of tormenting. Okay, fine. That's fair. But do you think you as a Christian are a torment on the people in your community, at your job, in your neighborhood? That's not what we want to be. That's, we're not trying to be that. But that is what the world views us as. That's what this world will fully and totally see all of God's people as on the earth at that time as a torment. Here's why. In 1 Kings chapter 18, the wicked, sinful king of Israel over God's chosen people who has departed from God and has led God's people astray into the worship of pagan gods and idols, <laughs> this king, the wicked king, accuses the prophet Elijah, and he calls him, you troubler of Israel. You're a troublemaker. Coming with what you say is God's word. The Old Testament Jews... Not the Babylonians, not the Assyrians, not the Hittites, the, the Philistines, the Midianites, not the Ammonites. Jesus himself in the New Testament says, my, brother, my, brother Jewish bro my Jewish brothers, it was your fathers who killed the prophets. It was the Jews who killed their own prophets. Why? Because those prophets were troublemakers. For they were troublemakers specifically for those who were in sin. Their prophecy, which is the truth that they were telling, that God told them to tell the people, their prophecy, the words of God to them, that we're sinful and that we have to repent and turn away from those things and turn back to God, that, make, that made them mad. That infuriated them. Made them feel very judged. Made them feel very judged and condemned. It, it got in the way of what we want to do. How dare you tell, who do you think you are to tell me what I can and can't do with my body, with my money, with my mind, how I feel about myself, how I define myself? So a lot of people go, well, you can't really apply the Bible today because times have changed. I don't think times have changed very much. 
I'm, I'm certainly not a big believer in like Darwinian evolution, but I'm definitely, I'm definitely open to the idea of devolution. When Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the Pharisees confront him for making trouble, for making a ruckus. They come and approach him. What are you doing? You're clogging up the streets. All, you, all these disciples, all these people, they're singing songs about you, calling you Messiah, calling you the Son of God, and that's not true. You're just a man. You're causing a big ruckus. You're a troublemaker. Throughout the New Testament, especially in Acts, the apostles and early Christians, they suffered persecution because they were stirring things up. They suffered persecution because they were stirring things up. See, we in the Roman society, we want a healthy, prosperous nation, and so deformed and sickly babies, or babies of a gender that we don't feel like we want, we take those babies and toss them in the trash pile outside the city. We're weeding out the bad blood in our bloodline. We're keeping our bloodline pure. That wasn't Hitler's invention. It was ancient Rome's. It was ancient pagans, ancient tribes. They were doing that. And the Christians were muddying the DNA genetic pool, the, the blood pool of society, because they were going outside of the city and taking those babies and feeding them and adopting them and making them their own and raising them. And that's a bad example. You guys are adopting slaves. You're freeing slaves. You're giving our slaves really bad ideas. You troublemaking Christians. When Jesus says there's no slave, we shouldn't enslave anyone. People aren't property. We're all made in the image of God. That's a problem. You're too exclusive. You're bad for society. You need to be punished. You need to be persecuted. You need to be canceled. They were making trouble, tearing apart the fabric of Roman society and setting a bad example. The witness and prophetic truth of the gospel causes trouble for those who are in sin. No one wants to be, including me, no one wants to be told that they are a born sinner, that they're worthy of God's judgment and anger. No one is happy to be told that they aren't and can't be or do good enough for God to accept them. We don't like that. We are built to believe that we can earn our way into God's approval. We can make agreements with him. We can enter into contracts with him. No one is interested in being told that they need to set aside their own ways, their own loves, their own thoughts, their own values, their own philosophies, and their own idols and turn to Jesus and his thoughts and his words and his ways alone. No one's interested in that. And when you come at me with that, I get ticked. I'm liable to punch you in the face. I'm liable to defriend you on Facebook. I'm liable to make fun of you and mock you until you shut up. And my concern, Restoration City Church, those of you who are listening later or now, and those of you here, my concern, my worry is that we as a church, just us, are being tempted to try to escape that because we've got a different strategy for being witnesses to Jesus one in which we can keep hold of our approval and our coolness and never be mocked and never be made fun of and never lose friends. And that didn't... That's, that's not the destiny that Jesus walked. And our destiny is, is wrapped up with his. That we will suffer. Like, I'm not... I don't want this. I'm not inviting this, right? But... Like Jesus' first sermon, after he's done, he said, amen. The result of his first sermon was a group of guys tried to pick him up and throw him off a cliff. And no one's ever done that to me because I was preaching. I don't know if there's something wrong with the way I'm preaching. But 
because I love the Lord, because I love you, because I love this church, and I'm going to stand before him for every word I give to you about his book, both here and in your homes and on the phone and text messages on social media. Listen, I, I can't afford to try to escape persecution, cancellation, imprisonment, because I need the world to like me. And I think, I can, I think I've got a better strategy than Jesus as to how I can keep the world's approval or keep your approval and still get the job done. Do you know what it required for Jesus to get the job done? It required him to die. If he didn't die, the job wasn't done. For his two witnesses, the job is not done until they die for the prophecy, for the truth. Now, the third point I, give, I gave at the beginning of the sermon Main point of the sermon, a destiny of all God's people. The church is tied up. It's bound to the, the destiny of Jesus. The third point, reward comes by persevering through persecution. Let me tell you this. We don't, we don't get to see that until verses 11 through the end. So I'm just going to tell you that, but I'll explain it next week. So you have to come back, okay? But I do want to give you a foretaste of it. If you are in Christ, you can expect to be treated like Christ, both by the world and by God the Father. That's the good news. That's good news. That's bad news and good news. You, if you are in Christ and if you are his witness, you can expect to be treated by, like Jesus was treated by the world. And you can expect to be treated like Jesus was by the Father. And that's good. It's, it's so good, it's better than the bad. Every Christian says they want to be like Jesus, but very few are willing to serve or suffer like him. Find me a Christian who goes, oh, I don't want to be like Jesus. They wouldn't say that. But what does the trajectory of our words and what's the trajectory of our lives and our actions, what's the trajectory of our days, our dollars, and our devotion? And would that betray the truth that we say we want to be like Jesus, but we don't really want to suffer, sacrifice, and serve like him? Or we do. The trajectory of Jesus that God chose is not that Jesus, the perfect son of God, is it, is it not? The mission that God put Jesus on, is it not that Jesus, the perfect son of God, would lay aside his beauty of victory and purity, his white robes, and take on humility and lowliness in sackcloth, wearing human clothing, wearing human skin? Was it not that instead of being crowned in gold and glory here, that he'd be crowned in thorns and shame? Isn't it that instead of keeping his life from sinners, he gave it over into their hands? Philippians 2 tells us why God the Father has decided, and he's decided, it is written, that his name, Jesus' name, is above what? All other names. Why, why do we worship and glorify this guy, Jesus? It is because he did not consider equality with God a thing to be laid hold of and held on for himself, but to lay it aside and become humbled and lowly, even to the point of being killed on a cross by and for his enemies. In Jesus' economy of glory, the way up is down. Revelation chapter 11. I'm not saying that the proper path for Christians to be Christians is to be constantly getting beat up, constantly getting scorned and mocked, never enjoying anything but salty tears. No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is we think we can rightly say for ourselves, Christians of this time, they can rightly say that we are in danger of loving comfort, appearance of, or approval, our coolness, our acceptance, our possessions, our social and political power too much. 
in a way that we think those things will protect us as we try to prophecy, and they will not protect us. In fact, they will sap the strength and the vitality of the truth we are sent to tell. So I tell you, you're trampled, but you are protected. And though you are killed, you are raised. And though you are rewarded in grace, you are rewarded in grace and God's enemies are punished in justice. Everything gets handled. I've already gone long. Can you give me four minutes? Thanks. You didn't say anything, so I'll take that as a yes. What should we do? Number one, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to bring you real honest judgment. We're going to pray in a few seconds, and you're going to to take communion. That's a good time to begin asking the Lord God through his spirit to bring you real honest judgment about yourself. Are you truly in the court? Are you truly part of the temple? Are you really a Christian? Do you really have the spirit of Christ in you? Or are you a religious person who thinks you can have one foot in the temple and one foot in the rest of the great city? You need to ask the the Holy Spirit to help you sort out where you stand and what you ought to do about that. Number two, you need to commit yourself to the church. The witnesses aren't two individual Christians. They represent the church. They represent the church. Christ died for the church, his bride. Christ resurrects his church the bride, and you want to be in it. In addition, you ought not believe that your witness will carry the strength, the longevity, the wisdom, or the power that you need it to if you're alone or on the outskirts or simply loosely affiliated with a collected corporate body of believers. The witnesses witness together. They're together. Number three, if you're a Christian, you're going to figure out, do you, you want to keep your life? You lay it down. That's the way Jesus did it. And that's what he tells us. What good is it if a man profits and gains all the world, thinks thinks he's getting his life, thinks she's getting her life, only in order to find out that you didn't get God, and now you lose your life. If you're a Christian, you want to keep your life and lay it down. Live as a witness who believes that you believe that your eternal life and soul are protected in such a way that you can suffer in persecution and death for telling the truth. Again, as Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body. Don't fear them the way that you're supposed to fear me alone. Obey me, trust me, follow me. Because I can kill the body and the soul and condemn to hell. They can only kill your body. What am I going to do? I'm going to raise your body and your soul. You live forever in glory. Number four, I want you to focus on what matters most. The gospel that brings the mercy of God and stands for the justice of God. I don't think the two witnesses are super distracted by careers or hobbies or Netflix or social media. They're not super distracted by what kind of home or career they have. They're not super distracted by frivolous pursuits or futile arguments and controversies. I don't, I don't see any reason to believe that these two witnesses are getting in long, protracted, protracted Facebook discussion, comment arguments, YouTube comment arguments, Reddit arguments. I don't think they're distracted by that. And so I would say, how should we respond? Let's be those two witnesses, if indeed we are witnesses. Don't get tr- 
tripped up in nor caught up by futile conspiracies. Don't get wrapped. I mean, I went, I went across the gas station and just mentioned to the lady who, who sells me my kids' Pop-Tarts and my Diet Coke this morning. Was like, she's like, oh, you look tired. I'm like, eh, I got that I got first COVID shot. And she's like, that's how the government gets you. She wanted to talk about it. I'm like, I'm full up on crazy right now. I got to go. I got to get these Pop-Tarts to my kids. I love her. She, I, I see almost every day. I love her. But I'm not going to get caught up in that conspiracy. Right? Now, I will tell you that I've put some of Shannon's makeup on my forehead to cover up the strange tattoo that's shown up. And I have this strange urge to, like, ditch school and listen to Metallica and fight for my right to party. But you guys pray for me. I'll be fine. But don't get wrapped up in or caught up in futile conspiracies. Don't get wrapped up in faulty arguments and frivolous pursuits. Don't let the world around you determine the terms and rules and the boundaries. Don't let them tell you how the game is played and what you, who you are and what you're supposed to do and what you're allowed to do. Preach the gospel with your life. When it comes to mercy, that applies for us as the God's witnesses to approach the present gender confusion and sexuality confusion in our nation and society, and we bring the mercy of God, the truth of the gospel, the mercy of God to say, oh, that's, that's sin, but I, I love you because I, I, I'm sinful too. Not in that way, but my own ways. I, we're alike can we be friends? Can, can we be friends? Can we trust each other? Because I, I love you. You are my friend. Please come to my dinner table. Please hang out with me, my friends. I don't want to harm you. I don't want to keep anything bad, uh, good from you. I want only good for you. Can we be friends? Can I love? We bring the gospel of Jesus who lives amongst and lays his life down for sinners. Let's not get distracted by anything else. Let's preach the gospel, not only of grace, but of also of God's justice. When it comes to the very real and present reality of racial reconciliation of our nation, nation and culture, when it comes to determining whether we ought to say what, what life matters or what life matters or not, or whether or not we should just, you know, just preach the gospel. I, I'm, I'm going way longer. I'm just going to do this, so uh, whatever. You're going to have to tackle me and get me out of the pulpit. Listen, let me tell you this. <laughs> yeah. When you hear brothers or sisters, many of whom I respect and learn from, say when it comes to race, just preach the gospel. There's no Jew or Gentile, there's no race, there's no black or white before the Lord, just preach the gospel. I'm going to ask you, are, are we telling our brothers and sisters who are fighting for the justice of unborn babies via abortion to just, hey, stop that. Stop that. Just preach the gospel. Stay at home. Go to church. Just preach the gospel. Trust the Lord. No, we're not. Because we do see that as a justice issue that the gospel speaks to, do, you know, do we not? And so likewise, the treatment of those who are made in the image of God, whether we see it or not, whether we've experienced or not, we're just supposed to preach the gospel and just message of the gospel as God's witnesses to say that those who are made in the image of God, which is all lives that matter, and some, there are some who are being treated, and they have been treated historically, specifically in our nation, as though their lives did not matter, and we know otherwise. Aren't we responsible to bear witness 
to the value of their lives in responses to those who don't understand the gospel like us and don't believe it? Focus on what matters most, the gospel that brings mercy and stands for justice, that brings God's mercy on a sinful, fallen world, rescued from God's condemnation, and pleads for the justice that serves the good of all men and all women and all babies, of all races, tribes, nations, languages, and tongues. I want you to strip away anything and everything that might ensnare your feet to run the race that God's given you as his witnesses. So often the question I get is, Pastor Matt, can I do this or that? Is it a sin? I'll answer that question, but that's the lowest question you can answer. That's a fine question, but it's the lowest answer. That's the lowest question you can answer. Is this a sin? Am I allowed to do it? The better question is, does it help you run? It might not be a sin, but will it help you run? Will it help you witness or will it get in the way? Idols that pull your love and heart away from God, sins that wound your conscience and steal your strength, and confusing values and philosophies that the world values, but they either confuse or war against the truth of God's word. Leave those things aside. We are the witnesses. Let us not suffer or be persecuted for anything except that. Except that. Thank you for your grace and your patience. I'm thankful that the Lord has given you uh, the ability to handle many words this morning. My hope is that they're good for you. Now's our time to enter a new communion. Let's respond to the Lord in this way. Near you, in your chairs, are the communion elements. Those of you who are at home, if you are a Christian, you're welcome um, to take communion in your home, bread, a cracker, tortilla, something of that nature, and red juice. In your, in your seats here today, you'll find those communion elements. They represent the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of this passage, who lived and died and was raised again for you and me and for all sinners who will accept him and believe in him. This cracker, which is the destruction of his body, and this blood, which is the pouring, this juice, which, are, which is the blood that he poured out, cleansing us of all sin and shame and humiliation and guilt. That's what we remember. That's what we learn. So while there's nothing mysterious and spectacular, nothing miraculous and magical about those physical things in your hands right now, there is everything spectacular, supernatural, miraculous, and marvelous about what they give us, what they show us. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We take this communion as friends of God, as sons of God, as his servants, as his people, as his witnesses. We take a communion. We have acceptance and approval, access to God. And this, this is the symbol of that. After I pray, we'll continue worshiping. If you're a member of this church, now's your time to worship the Lord in giving what he's put in your hands in sacrifice. You'll, you'll worship the Lord in sacrifice as you give money that God has given to you and say, I want to be like Jesus. I will serve, I will sacrifice, I will suffer like him, and I'll take what he's given to me as mine and give it back to him because it's his. That's your time to worship the Lord. And then we'll continue worshiping as well in song and more prayer. So I love you. Let me pray for us. Father God, I ask for your help over and above and past whatever I think my own weaknesses, my own frailties and foolishness are. I pray that the truth of your word will more powerfully overcome the weaknesses of the speaker and the hearers today. And you would do a work 
that is clearly and only and truly yours to do and that we would see it and know it. I ask that you would make us your disciples, those who follow you. We learn to speak like you, we learn to think like you, feel like you, speak like you, and do like you. I pray that you would do it by the power of the Holy Spirit that was given to us by Jesus Christ, sent by God the Father in heaven. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thanks, guys.